Open the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the end of this chapter, verses 18 through 29. It's on page 1196 of the Pew Bible. I was uh, five, five years old when my parents divorced. After the divorce, my mother took my sister and I, my older sister and I, to Europe for a year. And we lived in uh, various places, but we lived in Switzerland for a number of months. And I remember my mother sitting us down and just teaching us one phrase. Just one phrase. 135 Alois Fouquet. I can still say it. 135 Alois Fouquet. And she kept saying, say it back to me, say it back to me. 135 Alois Fouquet. We didn't speak French. My mother did. But my mother wanted us to know our home address in case we got lost. And so she said, if you ever get separated from me, just find a policeman and say, 135 à Louise Fouquet, over and over and over again. That way, the policeman would take us back home. My mother wanted little five-year-old Blake to remember, above all else, where I lived. And in a way, in the text today, that's, that's what the author is doing. He is reminding his readers, and, and by way, reminding us where we truly live. He wants us to remember our spiritual geography. These poor Jewish Christians who were being severely persecuted by the Roman government had gotten lost. They had forgotten their home address. And they were thinking of leaving Christianity, leaving Christianity and returning to Judaism, leaving Christ and going back to Moses, leaving grace and returning to law, leaving heavenly Mount Zion and going back to Sinai, metaphorically speaking. And here the author is reminding them, just remember where you live. Look with me at verse 18. God's word says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, into heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to pause here. In this chapter 12, the author has told the persecuted Christians how to make it through the pressures that they are, they're facing. And that is to preach the gospel to yourselves. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Preach that gospel to yourself. He has also told them why they're being persecuted. That was the sermon two weeks ago. God is disciplining them. God is padeying. God is training them. They're, they're living Romans 8.28. He's treating them as children is the encouragement there. And now he turns to encourage them one last time before concluding his letter by answering the what question. What they would be giving up if they turned away from Christ. What they'd be giving up if they turned away from Christ. He wants these believers to realize the greater privilege that they have as Christians. And that's the first point. The greater privilege you have as a Christian. You've heard it said that eternity began when you gave your life to Christ. Have you heard that? Eternity began when you gave your life to Christ. In other words, by looking at Christ's work and not your own salvation, your own saving work, your eternal life has begun. Ephesians 2 states it this way, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus himself. That's where you are positionally. Christians are now citizens of heaven with all the privileges thereof. The Bible uses a bunch of metaphors to to convey this. In Ephesians 2, you go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God, right? In 1 Peter 2, you you go from being a, a child of darkness to a child of light. In John 5, Jesus says you've gone from death to life. And here the metaphor that is used is you've, you've gone from Mount Sinai to heavenly Zion, to heavenly Jerusalem. What the author is trying to help them and us understand through this metaphor is their basic relationship, approach, and worship of God is far, far better than it was. Your relationship, your approach, your worship of God can't even be compared to what it was under Judaism. See, Christianity just isn't a progression of Judaism. It's, it's so much better that it pales in comparison. Christianity is a thousand times better than Judaism. That's what he's been saying in Hebrews throughout. In, Romans, in Hebrews 8, 6, he says it's a new and better covenant. That's how he framed it. And here he shows this by comparing the two mountains where God dwelt among his people, Sinai and Jerusalem. And he has in the back of his mind, as he's, as he's saying these, these words, writing these words to them, he has in the back of his mind Exodus 19, where God came down on Mount Sinai 
where he, he actually came, God came to earth visibly. God had led his people directly to Sinai out of their bondage in Egypt. To, and this was the place where the law was given, where the, where the covenant was entered into by the people, where a nation was formed. But primarily it was a place where the people of God met with, experienced, and worshipped God for the very first time. And in Exodus 19, it, if you go back and read that, you see that this experience was not all joy. It was actually what, what he's, he's describing here in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. It was a place of, of fear. It was a place of dread. There was fire. He, he describes it here as fire and darkness and gloom and storm, tempest. Sounds of, of trumpets. I don't know if you've... My daughter is on YouTube, so she shares some things with me sometime, and she shared a couple weeks ago how all around the wor- world these people are hearing these loud trumpet blasts in nature. I don't know if you've, you've seen this on YouTube, and she showed it to me. You know, People over in Uzbekistan and, and over here are hearing the same sound, the same loud blast. And it's kind of scary. And it was terrifying at Mount Sinai. And, and God spoke. And it was terrifying to hear him speak. So Sinai was a place of fear and dread. It was also a place of distance. Yes, the people of God were closer to Yahweh than they'd ever been before. Geographically. But if you read Exodus 19, and it's alluded here in our text, they couldn't even come onto the mountain. God said, stay away from the mountain. Don't even touch the mountain. Only you, Moses. Not even the priests. No people. And it's alluded here when it says, if, if an animal even touched the mountain, that animal is to be stoned. Here and no further, God was saying. Kind of like the Garden of Eden, right? So holy and set apart was God that if anyone even touched the mountain, they were killed. So it was a place of distance. And the Sinai was also a place of death. That's how Paul describes that the whole ministry of the Old Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. A ministry that brought death that was engraved on stone tablets. That's what the author is saying it was like to live under the Old Covenant. It was dread and distance and death. Now, before we move too far into the macabre, we have to understand that living under the Old Covenant was also a a galactic leap forward towards God. Living under the Old Covenant was not horrible. God dwelt among his people. Sacrifices for sin were given. It was a great privilege to be a part of the covenant community. Great privilege. But as Al Mohler writes, Sinai is no longer the mountain on which Christians define their experience with God. That's not how we define our experience with God anymore. Heavenly Zion is how we define our experience. We are citizens of heaven. As Paul wrote in Philippians, heavenly Jerusalem. F.F. Bruce wrote, 
awesome as were the circumstances of the giving of the law in Moses' day, more awesome by far are the privileges associated with the gospel, Mount Zion. And that's what the author is trying to help them and us understand. So the author is telling those Christians, even though life is really difficult and you're, you're thinking about turning away from Christ, don't go back. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't turn back to Sinai where there is dread and distance and death. Remember where you live. Remember your spiritual geography. Remember what amazing privileges you have being a Christian. And that's what the author goes on to talk about in verses 22, 23, and 24. The author is explaining at least at least three ways in which our spiritual position on Mount Zion is much greater, far greater than it is at Mount Sinai. And the first one we see is intimacy, greater intimacy. I love how you said it, brother, uh, when you were introducing prayer, how it's an intense closeness in prayer. He wants that intense intimacy. God wants intimacy with his people. And he gives it to us. Look at verse 23. It says, we have come to God the judge. We are actually in his presence. At Mount Sinai there was distance. No one could approach. In the earthly Jerusalem, years later, there was distance, right? The temple was constructed full of barriers, right? Temple of the Gentiles, temple of the women, or court of the Gentiles, court of the women, Holy of holies, I mean holy place, and then the most holy place where God dwelt. There were barriers to get to God. And only one person could go in and see God and be in his presence. And only once a year. But now in heavenly Mount Zion there is intimacy. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, what we just did in prayer? The Old Testament saints would be blown away with. Hebrews has said this again and again, this, this closeness that we have in he, Hebrews 4.16 implores us to approach the throne of grace with confidence, right? We're to approach. There's no longer a curtain there. There's no longer these barriers to get to God. We can brush right in. Hebrews 10.22 opens the door for us to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance. He wants this closeness with us. Talking about a deep, abiding relationship. Intimacy with God. Intense relationship with God. I'm not on Craigslist, but I read about a Craigslist ad that was a request for a generic dad to barbecue burgers and hot dogs at an outdoor party. Somebody actually was asking for a generic father to come over and barbecue for them. The ad listed several dad-like activities desirable, including grilling hamburgers and hot dogs and referring to people as big guy, chief, sport, and champ. (laughs) And talking about dad things, such as lawnmowers, building your own deck, and Jimmy Buffett. 
Additional requirements in the ad included a minimum of 18 years experience as a father and 10 years experience grilling. Preferred name, Bill, Randy, or Dave. Now that might be kind of humorous to read those things, but but many Christians kind of want that relationship with God. That generic God that can come in every once in a while and grill a burger. Generic, distant. But that's not what's available to you through through Jesus Christ. And it's not what God wants with you and for you either. God himself wants an intimate relationship with you, with me. He wants that type of, of relationship where we use words like Abba, Dad. And we're invited to know him intimately. Do you realize that? By the very book you're holding in your hands, he invites us into this intimacy. He invites us to get to know him. I don't know how many people here ever had diaries when they were growing up, but what do you do with your diary? I mean, when I go and look at a diary, what does it usually have on it? A lock, right? And a key that you hide away. And what do you usually do with a diary? You don't let anybody see it. You hide it in your room where only you know where it is. Why? Why do we do those kinds of things? Because you put your most intimate thoughts there. You, you pour your heart into that book. You expose who you really are in that book. That's why it has a lock. I don't want anybody to know who I really am. Notice that your Bible does not have a lock on it. He wants you to know everything about him. At least everything that we can possibly understand in our small minds. He invites us, know me, get to know me. Don't just call me Bill or Randy or Dave. Call me Abba Father. I want that intense, deep, intimate relationship with you. And I want you to desire that deep, intimate, intense relationship with me. That's what it's like to live in heavenly Zion. Al Mohler says, Sinai is no longer the mountain on which Christians define their experience with God. Secondly, Sinai was a place of incredible worship. But we have a far, far greater worship experience. That's the second thing that this text shows us in verses 22 and 23. Our worship experience is infinitely greater than that on Sinai. When I, when I ask you, if I were to ask you what were some of the pretty intense or highlighted worship experiences in the Old Testament, where would you go? I'd probably go to some place in, in 1 Kings 8 when Solomon built the temple and they sacrificed tens of thousands of animals and, and Solomon prayed and and God's Shekinah glory filled the temple and that cloud was so intense and, and, and dense that they had to leave the temple area. Or perhaps on any day of atonement once a year where the 
priests came out with the two goats and placed the hands on the one goat and placed the sins of the nations on the scapegoat and sent him out, sacrificed the other goat, sprinkled the blood, and then he goes into the Holy of Holies, hoping that he comes back out. It's pretty intense. Certainly Sinai was pretty intense. It's described for you here, and go back and read Exodus 19. It's a pretty intense worship experience. These are all amazing worship experiences. But what the author is saying is they all pale in comparison to what we're doing right now. Let me, I pause there intentionally. Sinai pales in comparison to what we're doing right now. Because in verses 22 through 24, God is actually describing what is going on in our worship service right now. He's kind of pulling back the curtain, if you will, to show us what's actually happening spiritually. He's giving us like a a micro-theology on worship right here. We have worshiping with innumerable angels, it says. Innumerable angels worshiping at this very moment spiritually with us. The assembly of of the firstborn, that is the, the New Testament church, whose names are enrolled in heaven. That's the Lamb's Book of Life. That's that's us. We're here. And that's not that's obvious, but so are the saints of old. It says, and with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints are there too, worshiping with us. All worshiping with God at the center. This is, if you will, a, a, a shortened version of what you read in Revelation 4 and 5. What heavenly worship looks like. You have God, the triune God in the middle with the rainbow over it. No, no sea, sea, water, judgment. No judgment anymore. And you have those four beasts, right? Then you have, have the elders, who are worshiping and they're, they're throwing their crowns down. They're falling down. And it says, myriad upon myriad of angels worshiping God. And you know who else is there? Us. What's going on right now, brothers and sisters, is that. But we're a little like the Jews he's writing to. Many of us sitting here go, yeah, but boy, if I were back in Sinai and all that rumbling and there's earthquakes and there's storm and fire and wind and audible voice, gosh, that would be so much more intense. What's the big lesson, one of the big major themes and big lessons of Hebrews? Living by faith and not sight. Worshiping by faith is greater than worshiping by sight. Living by faith is greater than living by sight. Huel Jones in his commentary writes, The the Christian church today, fascinated with visible things, from images to icons, smells and symbols, robes and rituals, is a sure sign that true spirituality is either absent or on the decline. 
Brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're deeply desiring the visible, that's not living by faith. That's, that's weak. That's, that's decline. And that's what's being said here. Sinai is not as good as heavenly Zion. Worshiping by faith and not by sight is better. And all this is made possible by the mediator, Jesus Christ. Verse 24. By his greater sacrifice. It says there, and to Jesus, we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Two views on the blood of Abel here. It could either be what Abel sacrificed. He brought the first choice animal and Cain brought the grain. So the author could be saying Jesus' sacrificial blood is a greater offering than Old Testament sacrifices. Or it could mean the actual blood of Abel. You remember in Genesis 4, Cain killed Abel and buried him in the ground. And it says that Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance and judgment. So the author could be having that in mind and saying that Christ's blood cries out good news. It shouts forgiveness and peace with God. Either way of reading this, the author wants what the author is saying is Jesus' sacrifice is far, far greater than you're, th- than you're thinking of going back to the animal sacrifices. Stay in heavenly Zion. Do not go back to Sinai. When you're tempted to leave and give up and stop running the race, brothers and sisters, preach the gospel to yourself. You're citizens of heaven living in heavenly Jerusalem, not because you're a moral person. You're not there because the good outweighs the bad. You're not there because you're philanthropic. You're there because of what Jesus did for you. That's the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Jesus willingly put himself under the law. He sacrificed his glory and came. And we're just about to to think about this at the Christmas season, aren't we? This is what we focus on. He came and he sacrificed and put himself under the law so that he could live the life that we could not, so that he could live that perfectly righteous life in word, thought, and deed, and earn the righteousness. And Jesus willingly suffered and died in your place, in my place. First Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus suffered and died in your place. He substituted himself for you. He took the penalty for your sin on himself. And through his blood that we symbolically take part of in communion, we are granted forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And through his resurrection, he proved that who he was God incarnate in what he did, taking the sins on himself and conquering sin, the power of sin, and death. 
And if you trust in what Jesus did for you, the Bible says you will be saved. If you trust in what Jesus did and not what you do, you will be saved. That's the good news that we have. That is the good news that these Jewish believers once believed. And now we're thinking of leaving. And so the author gives one final warning to them before closing his letter. And that warning is found in verses 25 through 29. He writes, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, the Jews in the wilderness after Sinai, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. This is the last of the five warnings in Hebrews. There's five warnings in Hebrews, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, chapter 5 and 6, in chapter 10, and here in chapter 12. And the theme of all of them is, the greater the gift, the greater the responsibility. That's the backdrop through which we have to read all of these warnings. Who much is given, much is also required. Jesus taught that in Luke chapter 12 with the parable of the unfaithful servant. He he said this to the crowd that day, the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with fewer blows. From everyone who has much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The author is saying five different times, people, you have been given much in Christ. You have been given much in Christ. Therefore, you're going to be held to a higher standard. With greater knowledge comes greater culpability. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. And in verse 25, the greater responsibility is to respond to the gospel. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Respond to God's gospel. I registered for a doctor's appointment over the phone this week, and she was getting some information, background on me, and and she asked a question that I wasn't prepared for. She asked me, what religion do you consider yourself? I was on the phone, I was actually driving, I'm like, born-again Christian. And she goes, there's a pause, and she goes, there's no category for that. (laughs) In God's eyes, there's only two categories of people on earth. Those who are Christians, 
and those who are not Christians, those who believe in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ. Those are the two categories that God functions out of. And I would like to speak right here and now to those of you who do not consider yourself a Christian. If you're here and you were brought with a family member or friend and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I, I love that you're here. I want to invite you down and sit with you and talk and laugh and fellowship. It's a great place for you to be. And I hope you come back. But I want to talk to you for a second. Because what God is saying to you right now is you have a responsibility to respond to the gospel that was just preached to you. Verse 25 is for your ears. Today, this moment, do not refuse to respond to God that is speaking to you right now. There's only one truth. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one God. And that way to into a relationship with that God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said one day to the crowds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Eternal life is found through Jesus Christ. Through trusting in what he did and not what you do. Through confessing and knowing that you are a sinful person in dire need of forgiveness and Jesus is right there ready to give it to you. You've heard what Jesus went through for you today. The living and suffering and dying. And that is good news. That's what, that's what the gospel is. Good news. But also with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. Paul wrote, Today is the day of your salvation. I want to invite you, if you're sitting here today and have never given your life to Christ, today is the day to respond. Accept the gift that Jesus is. Accept his sacrifice. Accept his love. Because heaven is a very real place. And I don't say this to scare you. But hell is a very real place too. Those are the two destinations for everybody who ever lives or ever will live. It's just a simple truth. And the warning here in verse 25 is that if you reject him who is warning and calling you from heaven today, you will not escape the fate that the Jews coming from Sinai escaped. They all died in the, in the wilderness, all of them. Because the same God that sent Jesus to forgive and bring peace is the same God that verse 29 tells us is a consuming fire. It's one and the same God. But there's also a warning, not just for the unbeliever among us, but there's also a warning for the, for the believer here. The greater responsibility to remain in the gospel. 
remain in the gospel. This, of course, is the emphasis of the whole book of Hebrews. He keeps saying anything and everything in this world is worth giving up for Christ. Anything and everything in this world is worth giving up for Christ. Any comfort, any ease, any fame, any reputation, any family, any grades, any money, anything the world has to offer is worth sacrificing for Christ. Only that which is eternal will last. I think that's the reason he uses the the shaking language here. Yesterday we were driving and and I, I kind of came to a realization and so I voiced it. I said, hey guys, it's it's like three weeks until Christmas. I mean, the Christmas season starts. It's it's like three weeks until we're gonna have a tree in our in our in our uh, toy room. That's that's crazy. It kind of snuck up on us. You know, three weeks until Christmas music and lights and decorations and buying the all important tree. Now, when you buy a pre cut tree. There are four things that you have to look for, right? Everybody knows this. The four things. Fullness. Is it full? Are there any blank spots? Right? You turn it around. Oh, there's a huge blank spot. Can't have that tree. You look for height. Will it fit? Right? Carrie's always asking us to get this tree, and I'm always scraping the ceiling. What's the fourth thing? Freshness. Is this a fresh tree? And how do, you, how do you tell if a tree is fresh? What do you do? You shake it, right? And if a lot of needles fall off the tree, you know that don't buy this tree. You're going to put it up and in a week it's all going to be bare. You shake the dead ones off and the living ones stay on the tree. That's what this shaking metaphor is teaching us. Only the eternal things will remain when God shakes the earth. Haggai is asking them to think back to Sinai. God shook the earth at Sinai, right? Haggai is also saying, look ahead. He's going to shake it once again. I believe he's saying when Christ died. Remember in in Matthew 27, when Christ died, what happened? The earth shook. And there's a third shaking coming, brothers and sisters. And that is when Christ comes back. He's going to shake the earth again. And only that which is eternal will remain. Only that which is alive will remain. And so when temptation hits, brothers and sisters, when life gets tough, when you think God isn't on your side, when he's putting you through discipline that is never easy, remember who you are. Remember where you are. When life offers all those things that it does, the comfort and ease and acceptance, if you'll just compromise a little bit, that's how life comes at you. I'll give you this. If you compromise a little bit, don't compromise. Remember, there's going to be a shaking and only the eternal will last. Henry de Navarre was a member of the French royal family. He was also Roman Catholic. But he heard the gospel. He confessed Christ. And he sided with the Reformation. 
However, in 1593, the opportunity came for him to be crowned king. And he had to make a decision. Because France was Catholic. Is he going to remain with his convictions? Is he going to remain with Christ? Is he going to remember his spiritual geography? Or is he going to take the crown? Henry chose the world. He chose to revert back to Roman Catholicism and have the crown placed on his head in this life. In explaining his willingness to revert to Roman Catholicism in order to gain the crown, this is what he said, quote, Paris is worth the mass. The world will always offer you a crown. Always. It'll say, here, put this on your head. You can have it now. Always going to offer you the crown. Remember where you live, brothers and sisters. Remember that there will be a shaking and only the eternal will last. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. Spirit, these words are useless without you. Absolutely useless. Put them to work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to run the race that is marked out for us well. Lord, help us not to reach for the crowns that can be gained in this life. Help us to remember that Paris is not worth the mass. In Jesus' name, amen.